life. I, I, yeah, I, I've I, given I, up on being impressive <laughs> anyway. But you have a highly satisfying life. You have lived your life to the fullest. in to the podcast um, my very first launch series so I'm still trying things out and today I'm thinking of doing a very fun conversation with you to explore the more personal side of you and hopefully it can be a source of inspiration for many women or men out there kids when they listen to this conversation um, and I think that core belief that we want to tap into is that you your gut is telling you something and sometimes you need to trust your instinct i don't know whether it's scientifically proven but you know there are many cases where you and i look back in our lives and we suddenly can find some um, guiding light if you will when the most brilliant things happen when we choose to listen to our gut so i think just from the laughter you just heard you wouldn't want to miss out the next 40 minutes or so with my next guest on this episode of Speak Your Guard Out. Sam, you have a very interesting background, which I should recite a little bit <laughs> to introduce you. So I do have uh, Dr. Xian Xian Lei with me today. And she's actually the CEO of the American Chamber of Commerce, MCHAM, in Singapore. So essentially, right. you look after bis uh, American businesses who are operating in Singapore, right? <laughs> That's your main job. That would be the main purpose, but we're actually more diverse and inclusive than that. So it is a misconception that we only have American member companies in our community, mm -hmm. but we actually have member companies that are not American-owned, but who have significant business interests either in the U.S., or interest in collaborating and partnering with U.S. companies, American-owned companies. So it is very important that our chamber is very diverse and inclusive so that we can have the best business environment possible. Right. So I think that's your professional job. And previously, you were yeah. the VP of Medtronic Asia Pacific, and you were handling medical and scientific affairs. And yes. see, and I knew you since your Ogilvy days. That's probably that's like right. eight years ago. When we are both yeah, communicating. I left you know, in 2015. Yeah. yeah. So we're both in the communications field and uh, yeah, writing uh, messages, uh, digital health, whatnot. Yeah. In, uh, all in that work. So I guess it's a, it's a great pleasure that you agreed to do this, you know, without hesitation. My pleasure. Yeah. And of I, course, I, anything you want, I'd say yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm really grateful because uh, you've been very supportive of what I do. And this is a little passion project of mine. Uh, nice. And you know that that with a bit of anxiety and gut issues in the past few months. And if I can spread the awareness to one more person listening to this, I, I think I would have made my uh, podcast worthwhile, my time and the effort, and my, the time and effort of my speakers as well. Absolutely. I think I first realized that the gut is a big bag of nerves when I was in graduate school. I graduated in 1998, so you do the math. And at that point in time, I remember in my final year, I was so stressed out writing my dissertation, finishing my experiments, and 
had to, you know, go to the bathroom all the time. Mm -hmm. So I think at that point, I started making the connection like something is related to stress here. And over the years, of course, we've learned so much more about that. So, Right. And that's the other part of your CV. I haven't even read your public health scientist by training. So you kind of touch upon, you know, your studies. And you had it way earlier than me. Like 20 years ago, you're already in tune with your gut. (laughs) Well, something was certainly not right. So I think uh, back then I suddenly realized I don't think probiotics back then were so common. So there wasn't really anything I could do about it except just be aware Mm -hmm. and try to be careful. But now I feel like there are more things that we can do that help us, you know, get through the period. But yeah, it's not a fun thing to talk about or to experience, is it? Certainly. It's not fun and it's also not easy. Um, I guess I don't have that awareness like you 20 years ago. To me, it kind of came in one blow, right? It's almost like you have all these jigsaw puzzle pieces, bits and pieces everywhere, um, telling you something, oh, my body, my stomach, my mind, you know, giving you some clues. But I'm missing the whole picture. I couldn't form it together to, to exactly explain to myself what's going on. Uh, so that's gut health. Um, and I think once you are able to see the picture, that's where you get clarity. You're able to make sure that you get to the right treatment to remove all the infection, allergies um, that's causing distress in your microbiome. And then you regenerate growth and new bacteria that's is actually going to help your body re- recover and maintain a good infrastructure, so to speak, from, from, from now on. And that's what I'm doing right now. And I guess this podcast is really aimed to spread this awareness. If more people understand this, then a lot of people would not have to go through uh, symptoms and pain, a lot of discomfort when things become irreversible. I remember my late mom told me this uh, in the hospital bed when she was still able to speak, uh, that to take care of your health first, because once you lose it, you lose it. Yeah, and uh, I make it my mission to really, you know, be grateful to take care of my health and uh, and also want to do more in, in the area of healthcare. But today we are not really covering a medical topic. I guess, Sien, uh, I couldn't think of a better person to invite um, to really talk about um, the world we are in today, you know, how life has changed and how does really... Tuning into your um, body and your gut will be beneficial. Uh, I hope it can be an inspiration for other people to listen to your story and and some of the ways you've managed around your life. Yeah, well, I I guess I wouldn't say that I was any busier than anyone else. And I suppose it's one of the 21st century ills that we many of us go around talking about how busy we are, busy, busy, busy. But it's, for me, not something that I aspire to, nor do I even admit to it. And maybe it comes down to when I was in college, I went to a school where people were incredibly smart. Mm. But at the same time, we were in California. So in California, it's supposed to be a little bit more relaxed. You know, you wear your socks with your Birkenstocks and everyone's supposed to be chill. And so at that point, we, many people would pretend like they were not studying, even though, they were frantically studying in the library. You just couldn't see them. So I 
suppose in some ways it was kind of a faker mode where you fake that you're not, yeah, where you're just basically pretending like you're not that busy, even though, because it wasn't cool to be seen as being that busy. It was cooler to be seen as someone where things came easily and you didn't have to work so hard at it. So that's a flip side of where we are today, where I feel like whenever you ask somebody how they are, often the response is, oh, I'm so busy. Oh my gosh, I'm so busy. And I recall one of the SVPs at Medtronic when I was there, she told us women leaders that that was not an appropriate answer, particularly if a senior leader is speaking to you and they ask you, how are things going? And if your response is, oh, I'm so busy, that is really not something that is very descriptive and not even particularly accurate. You know, we need to think through what is it that we're busy with and what kind of commitments do we have that's actually meaningful enough to be taking up our time. Mm -hmm. So I very rarely tell people, oh, I'm so busy. What I usually say is, well, there's certain things that I've been focused on and I, I like to talk about ideas and I like to talk about projects and work. So I often focus on that. And when it comes to being busy, I would say that I try not to be busy. I try to spend my time wisely. Like I say, I like to focus on ideas, developing ideas, developing programs, developing actual things that we can do to make a difference. And as much as possible, I try to allow myself the time to read, to listen to music, to hang out with my kids. I watch a lot of, uh, I consume a lot of media. So whether I'm reading it, whether I'm watching or listening to it, I love podcasts. So it's really a delight to be on my first podcast today. But I consume, you know, I, I like to watch K-dramas. And so I try to spend as much of my time not being conventionally busy because I feel it feeds into my busyness period, my desire to be constructive, productive. And I wouldn't be able to do it if I didn't have moments where I am technically not busy. Right. So it's being deliberate about you know, making chunks of time for different things and, you know, things that actually enriches you as you consume this media and unwind as well, right? And not exactly. Just, yeah, making, not every action has to have a result. Well, the result is that I'm a little bit more relaxed. I learned some years ago that if I didn't get regular doses of physical activity, whether it's a 30-minute walk or strength training or something, I would just be really crabby. So I could be conventionally busy, start my day off doing emails, which I still sometimes have to do, depends on what's going on. But if I every single day wake up at 6 a.m., start working, 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 I can tell you by 2 p.m. people will have know, will know very well that Shen didn't get her exercise today because her temper is rather short and she is not very patient. So if I know that I have a difficult day coming up with a difficult meeting or things that I have to tackle that's going to require more energy, I definitely make the time to go out for a walk because those are the things that feed into your ability to get things done. Yeah, I guess that's the thing. Being more proactive in managing your your lifestyle and your stress, you know there's something important coming up and you make uh, time for that, you know, not giving yourself excuses that you just don't have time for a walk or exercise. And putting in these small little checks along the way I guess consistency is key uh, to really make sure that you manage yourself before you manage other people. Exactly. And, and consistency is the right word. And consistency doesn't mean that you have to do the same thing every single day. So there are times where you will need more sleep than you do exercise, right? So I think maybe the bottom line is being in, being in tune with your physical and mental health and knowing where you need more of something versus another. 
because I don't think also people should feel guilty if they haven't been working out vigorously, if what they really need to be doing is going to bed an hour earlier, right? There are moments in our lives where we just are not able to get out there and go to the gym and whatnot. COVID-19 is one reason why gyms for a while were shut down, right? Or, you know, our kids need us or caregiving duties make it impossible for us to go and get that physical exercise. But what else can you balance it out with? So I think there's no real strict rule of course the doctors will tell us 30 minutes every single day but guess what life gets in the way and on balance if we take care of most things i think we'll be okay cool so what's the unwinding you know your unwinding routine look like it's 6 45 on a thursday evening what are you gonna do after this well, today is probably an exception because I actually had a number of different events today and I'm actually going to be attending a graduation ceremony for a mentorship program after this. At least that's what I think is on my schedule. I know there's a block of time after this right. where I need to show up for something. But typically, I do try to finish work before 9 p.m. So, and it's, it's not, again, I, I'm not a very regimented person. So I know people who like routine, they like to finish at a certain time and do another thing at a certain time. My husband is one of them. He has always been very clear. He'll tell me, we started dating in college and he'll say, we can go out in an hour and a half because I will be done with this assignment by then. And I would think, how would you know? Like, I don't know how long it's going to take me to finish something, but he always would. So he typically finishes work by six or seven o'clock. Typically, even when he's in the office, doesn't matter if he's working from home. And if he doesn't have an evening engagement, which most times we don't have anymore because of COVID, then he goes and he does his thing. Now, I won't out him by telling everybody what he spends his time doing. It's perfectly fine. It's perfectly healthy. But he has that time where by 8 o'clock, he's off doing his thing, right? But for myself, I'm, I don't have that kind of regimented approach to doing things. So I would say maybe two nights out of the week. I might be clearing things until about 9 p.m. or so. I do try to get to bed by 10, not necessarily fall asleep, but I want to be in bed by 10, reading or listening to something, fall asleep before 11. That's my preferred because I wake up at 6 a.m. to take my daughter to primary school. Um, But the other nights when I come home around 7 plus, if I've been in the office, I just hang out with my kids and I read and I watch my shows and whatever. And again, it's I, I like to be in bed by 10 and asleep before 11 because I want to get up by 6. So the number of hours sleep is where I'm much more rigid about or strict about making sure I don't go under six six hours of sleep because that, for me, that's unsustainable. And I really need about seven or eight hours of sleep. Right. So how would you, your kids describe you? I'm just curious. What's the end like from... <laughs> Well, I know that I'm very good entertainment because I always think they're very good entertainment. I figure that the, the, for me, the most important reason to have kids is because they need to entertain you. So my kids are very entertaining, I think. <laughs> Seriously, the second thing might be that when I get old, I'll need somebody to help me out. But right now for me, in oh, this no, kind of you life. Oh, forget about the second one. <laughs> So, so it's true, right? So for me, the most important thing is that they've got to be interesting and entertaining. And I have to say both my kids are interesting and entertaining in their own way. But I also think that I play that role with them. So in my previous role, when I was upwards of about a third of the time, and I would be in different parts of Asia Pacific, sometimes in Europe, sometimes in the U.S., one thing my daughter would always say is, it's so quiet when you're not here. Oh. So quiet. 
Nobody's, everyone's kind of off doing their own thing and there's not anybody walking around talking about various nonsense. And because I'll read things and I'll go out and be like, did you guys see this? Right. So, so she says it's very quiet. So I'm definitely a good source of entertainment. Um, and the other thing is that, but, but on the other hand, sometimes I can be very distracted. So that's something I have not fixed because I do have so many things that I'm very interested in and I want to pursue it. And I suppose one thing that my kids have had to learn is to work around the things that I'm focused on for that moment. So for some years, I was working from home as a freelancer. So I was working primarily in writing and publishing and doing some genomics consulting because I'm a genetic epidemiologist by training. And my son at a very early age knew when I was on the phone or very at that time it was Skype. And so he would know how to enter a room quietly, press himself against the wall so that he wouldn't be in camera view and like ask for stuff on the side by trying to make eye contact with me or in some other way. But generally speaking, my kids have been trained from a very young age to know when I'm working. Like, like right now, they will not come in the room because they know I'm working. So they've been trained from a very young age to, to be aware of that, mm-hmm. which means that sometimes even when I'm with them, I will check my phone or I'll read something and I'll be a little bit distracted. So at one point I thought I was losing my hearing or something like that, uh, or just like, oh, my hearing had, isn't good because I seem to not be catching what people are saying. So I said to my son, like, do you think I'm losing my hearing? Because I feel like sometimes when I uh, talk to people, I'm not catching what they're saying. And he says, no, it's because you're not actually focused and paying attention oh when God. they respond to you. I was like, really? I was worried I might have dementia. But I think he's right in some way. They do notice I can be, you know, have split attention. So that's not a great thing. But in some ways for them, I tell myself, I rationalize it as in they've got to learn that people are busy and they are not the center of my universe. I love that your son actually said that and you're willing to listen, but not compromising your own uh, values and belief system and how you work around the house. I guess we're both mothers and can certainly relate to that. I did try, but I have to say, I just think that um, my, my head is always spinning on various cylinders. So, But I do try to focus more after being aware of that. There are just moments where I've got so many things that I want to get to in my head that I might not be completely you know, in the moment. But for me, I'm okay with that. That's just something that I'm okay with. Yeah, it's remarkable that your son actually said that to you and you listened to him and you tried to correct yourself. Um. I don't think it's as much of a mystery to me, probably because I've always been involved in some way in science and medicine and healthcare since mm-hmm. I was quite young. So I think uh, I remember there was a magazine in the U.S. some years ago that I started reading when I was in seventh or eighth grade, quite young. It was like I think it was called Health. It was just a health magazine. And I remember reading it. You know, every time it came out, cover to cover, and it was just something I was always interested in. So any kind of random symptom that anybody would have, including myself, I would always have a general idea of what it might be. And I'm not a hypochondriac, so it wouldn't be if I felt a twinge or I had some kind of pain or something, I would immediately go to the worst thing. I've always been very practical about it, probably to the point of where I don't pay attention to some things I should pay attention to. But generally speaking, because I have a fairly good working knowledge of physiology, it's something that gives me a great sense of, uh, how do you say, understanding of when I start to feel funny in whichever way I know how to deal with it. Well, can I drill down a little bit more on what you just said? You know, I'm okay with that. 
So you've worked in six different countries. You're Taiwanese American. You've worked in the States, in Taiwan, Japan, UK, and Vietnam. And of course, you're now based in Singapore. So what are some of your observations of people's perception on taking control of their own health and well-being? Uh, are there any differences? Yeah, I think in the different cultures. So when I lived in Taiwan, I think people were had great reverence for physicians. And so I was at National Taiwan University Hospital doing my postdoc. And I recall patients coming in and they would always have presents for the doctors, right? Mm -hmm. And my the, the head of my lab, he was a very well-known endocrinologist. So he treated some of the most wealthy diabetes patients in Taiwan, and they always came with big boxes of fruit. So that was an attitude that I thought was really interesting. The idea that in some ways you could almost buy your health. Mm. Now we know, we know it's true, but for some reason in a culture where you felt like you revered your doctor so much that you would always have to give them presents and such things, it was kind of odd in my opinion, mm. because American culture doesn't really have that kind of gifting mentality. All right, but at the end of the day, uh, Taiwan health system, as you know, is very, very good. People have access to healthcare. Everyone has access to healthcare. So I think the general perception of medical care there is it's you have anything wrong, you have somebody to go to and somebody will take care of you. Right. And then when I went to Japan, I think people are a little bit more quiet, right? But it's still a gift type of culture. And um it's more of a relationship-driven culture as well. So I gave birth to my first baby in Japan, mm -hmm. and I was referred to a hospital, a small privately-owned hospital in Nagoya, where the doctor was very well-known to help infertile couples. So that was not an issue for me. I was already pregnant when I saw him, but there it was like patient privacy was not a concern. So they assumed that my Japanese wasn't very good. I wouldn't say I'm fluent, but I'm good enough to get by day to day. And given the medical terminologies, I was very comfortable with that. But he, you know, the, the doctor would regularly tell my friend, who I had not given permission for him to do so, but he thought I couldn't understand Japanese. So he would regularly have him, have his nurses or himself call her and tell her, you tell your friend she should not gain so much weight. You tell your friend that her blood pressure is on the high side. And I'm like, you didn't tell me, right? You don't go around and tell my friend who I haven't even given you permission to do so. So in, in my own personal experience, and I'm this is my own personal experience, I didn't feel that patient privacy was not so high on the list of priorities mm -hmm. when I was receiving care in Japan. And then going to Vietnam, I mean, there you could see this was in, gosh, 15 years ago in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam, where the country was still just on the verge of really getting in the big department stores and really, you know, as, you know, becoming more wealthy and having maybe access to a lot of things we take grant for granted. At that time, what I could see in the population was that many people still didn't really have access to good medical care. And one of the indicators for most populations when it comes to good medical care is people's dental health. Right? So you would see adults who would just be missing teeth or have rotten teeth. And it was just a very common thing among the general population. So for me, even though I was only there just under two years, and clearly by then I had a small child, so I wasn't interacting in the community too much. But my observation was that foreigners would go to the expat clinics and receive generally pretty good care. But the vast majority of the population at that time did not have access to very good care in general. 
So that was very eye-opening. And then we're doing like a tour around the world of healthcare systems. <laughs> so then my next place where we lived was in the UK where I got exposed to NHS, where essentially you register at your neighborhood clinic and then that's where you go to get care. And it was all very professional. Everyone had access. And even though we were foreigners because we paid taxes, we also got access to free medical care, which was super eye-opening. And um, I would say that for the most part, it was good because anything acute would be taken care of. But I felt that given that everyone had access, the physicians could become very overwhelmed or blasé about certain things to keep costs down. So as an example, my husband had a terrible um, cold and I think it ended up getting quite serious. And they just gave him just run-of-the-mill antibiotics, which is fine, I think, generally speaking. I'm certainly not someone who would advocate for the liberal use of antibiotics, no way. But in, but in certain cases, we know we need it. He ended up, for work, coming back to Singapore and was still terribly sick, went to one of the Singapore hospitals where he was immediately put on IV antibiotics. That's how serious they thought it was. So it was a huge difference in the type of care he was receiving in the UK versus Singapore, where Singapore tends to be a bit more aggressive. Um, and then I had my baby, my second baby, in an NHS hospital, Queen Charlotte's in Hammersmith in London. And there I was also just astounded in terms of the difference in care. Right. So your husband's Singaporean, right? So I remember you were sharing at one of these female yes. leadership panel that we had a couple of years back. Uh, about how you were a trailing spouse and you followed him and then you, you guys had a pact that every few years you kind of revisit the, the the arrangement. Yeah, would you want to share with us more about it and you know how that how did it work for you in terms of creating this family harmony and relationship that that works for both of you? Well, I don't know we actually deliberately went about doing it um, because we were actually living apart from each other for a few years at the, or in the early stage of our marriage because I was finishing up graduate school in the U.S. and he had already decided to start working in Asia. Mm. And interestingly, I think the two of us are just extremely low maintenance. So we're not the type that when we were apart for four years, we needed to talk to each other every day. In fact, even every week sometimes became like, yeah, you know. So, so we're very low maintenance. And so over the years when I was a trailing spouse and we moved from place to place, it was, I, I don't know, I guess I just felt that it was fairly okay with me to find my own path. I've always been very risk, I was, I'm a risk taker, right? I'm willing to try new things. In fact, one of the interviews I went on some years back, I met with one of the leading cancer researchers in Singapore. And he said, I like you, you're a risk taker. Because I was willing to do things that other people, maybe with my background or my pedigree or whatnot, would just never think mm -hmm. of doing, would not ever agree to do. But partly because I ended up in this trailing spouse situation where I was moving to countries where I couldn't speak the language. So it wasn't like I was going to start my own research because a lot of epidemiology is based on designing surveys and understanding population health, which means you have to get into the population. And not being able to speak the language was a huge hindrance. So I just, you know, started trying, experimenting with different things and kept myself happy, kept myself busy. And 
I never really felt that I had gotten the short end of the stick. In fact, I felt sorry for my husband because he's the one who has gotten up every day for over 20 years, gone to work with the same company and just consistently, you know, gone to work and done his thing. But I've always had the freedom to explore and try new things. And even some things that other people like my father probably thought was quite silly and didn't leverage supposedly this these fancy degrees I had, but I thought it was freedom. So I feel like I've always had freedom mm. all these years to experiment. So I suppose it's a mindset thing. And I and I suppose because I'm so low maintenance, I feel no need to have any kind of agreement with my husband as in now it's your turn, now it's my turn. Now I want to do this, now you do that. And we've just kind of like gone along with what the other did. And the only difficult decisions were moving, right? But at that point in time, it was the company driving those decisions to move. I also felt really lucky because I've gotten to live in all these different places. Whereas before, Absolutely. it would yeah, I would never have crossed my mind to go live in Ho Chi Minh City for two years. Right? And then we got to live in London for a couple of years. And wow, I mean, London has so much history and all of that. I don't think I would have gone to live there had the company not posted him there. Mm-hmm. So I, I find myself, I'm very lucky. I have a lot of freedom. I have had a lot of life experiences. And freedom is priceless, right? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Being not not following a script in your life. But tuning into your gut instinct and make the right choices. Sometimes it might be not the most logical one, but something you feel so strongly about in your gut, you know, in your instinct. You just had to do it. Was there such a defining moment for you, Xian? If you look back in your life. Yeah, I was thinking about this when you first mentioned it to me some weeks back. And there's so many moments where I basically did not thoroughly investigate the pros and cons and just kind of went with what I felt like. And some things are quite mundane, as in here are two good jobs. One of them is it requires an extra hour of commute on the bus because, you know, there's no really other way to get there and you don't have a car. The other one is much closer to city center, but it's not as prestigious. Which one do you pick? Right. The other one is also closer to home. Um, so you get to hang out with your family a bit more. I'll tell you what, from those kinds of daily decisions, my usual rule of thumb is I will do, I will choose the one that's better for my family, right. better for my personal life. The prestige factor doesn't really sway me that much. So even when I went to college, certainly there was the opportunity. I grew up in California. There's opportunity to go to the East Coast. And I can't say that the school I went to was bad. It was not bad. But one of the overarching reasons for why I chose this school that I did is because it was much closer to home. I could drive home in one hour, right? And it was better for me, in my opinion, to be closer to my family. That was more important to me. And even throughout my adult life, that's how I've made some pretty um, important day-to-day decisions, right? But the major one that I was thinking about, the major one that I think really changed everything was... um, well, I suppose they're related. It's a couple of incidents. So my husband and I met in college. Mm-hmm. So we've known each other for a super long time. And then we, so we started dating in, I think, the beginning of our junior year, but we knew each other sophomore year. So that's the second year of college. And then um, in senior year, we were deciding what to do after graduation. And I had already decided I wanted to get an advanced degree in public health. Now, you know, I picked the schools I wanted to, uh, the programs, the professors I wanted to study with, a few schools, and I had been, I was really lucky I got admitted to all of them, one of which was very close to home. Mm -hmm. And then the other one was on the East Coast, all the way across the United States, around the opposite side. 
And it was a place I'd never lived before. And I tell people it's, it's in Baltimore, Maryland, which is very well known for having high crime. So if anybody watches The Wire, it is based upon the crime scene in Baltimore. It is very realistic. And when I visited that school, uh, there were security guards because we're on the medical campus and the school of public health is with the medical campus. And there are security guards on every single corner who are actually off-duty police officers. Now, this is a few years ago, many years ago. So I don't know if it's like that now, but I suspect it is. But so off, off-duty police officers on the corner. So this is a school that's pretty intense, right? High crime, not that safe, but the best school in the country. And then I came back and I told my husband, we were not married yet. Our, uh, he hadn't decided what he wanted to do after graduation. He thought he was going to stay an additional year to get a master's. And so I had the choice of choosing a graduate school very close to where we already were versus going all the way across the country to a place that obviously wasn't all, wasn't all that safe. Um, and it was the few moments in my life where I decided to go for something that wasn't necessarily the best thing for my relationship or for my family because my family was nearby. But somewhere in my gut told me I needed to go all the way to the East Coast for graduate school to this place where there are off-duty police officers on the corner and gunshots at night. I just, there, there's something I got to say I had to go. I didn't do a list of pros and cons like a lot of people ha- would have done. Um, I, there are many, many pros to going to either school, many, many pros. Um, but I decided to do it. And my husband, I remember, was somewhat distraught because I had decided to go so far away and he didn't really have anything lined up if he were to follow me. But you know what? In the end, it totally worked out because he ended up coming to Asia to work. I went and I finished graduate school. And I was telling my 18-year-old son this the other day. If he ever ends up in a relationship where he and the girl have a difference of opinion about what they should do next, personally, for their own careers and whatnot, whatever she decides to do, he needs to support her. If, when they're very young, I mean, we're not talking about, right, in your 50s or whatever. This is, we're talking like very, very young, right out of college. I said, you need to support her because it sets this person up for the rest of their life, right? And if you really think that you are meant to be together, this period of time will seem like nothing because I've now been married 26 years. Oh, my God. And I'm, yes, <laughs> 26 years. And I'm so incredibly glad that I, in that instance where I knew that this was going to set me up for the rest of my life, going away to this school in particular, um, it just it has made all the difference. And I have still no really good reason for why that one time I didn't choose a better thing in terms of my what would have been easier for me in terms of my relationship or my family. It was just that one time. But I tell you, going away to school and getting that degree, it's just set me up for the rest of my life, really. Well, it's mind-blowing. My son is 18 too, so I will definitely pass that message on to him. Well, that leads us to our final question, which is, what is that one thing people can pay more attention to when it comes to tuning into your instinct, what your gut is telling you, and taking actions? Well, I suppose when it comes to making having a gut instinct and making decisions, once you've made the decision, I often tell people, don't look back. Mm-hmm. So there is this artist I really like. Her name is Mary Anglebright, and she does these whimsical drawings. And some of it can be quite sarcastic. The, the, the words are sarcastic, but the drawing is so cute, right? So it's like a juxtaposition of uh, feelings and ideas. And I love that. And so one of the drawings she has is of this um, little person 
with a cute little straw hat carrying a, a pouch on a stick as if they're running away from home. And there's a fork in the road. And one, one fork in the road has a street sign, a, a, a path sign that says, don't look back. Mm. Right? And that's the direction that this person is going to go. And I think that's what it is. It's that you're going to make a decision based on what you know now. You're going to make the best decision you know now based on your current experience. And once you've made that decision, just go with it. Right. You might look back later and go, oh, I should have done this or maybe I should have married a different guy or maybe I should have taken a different job or gone to a different school or whatever. But you know what? It's too late for that. Like own your decision, make the best of it. And if it didn't turn out to be so great, it's fine. You can still change your mind, but just not at the moment where you made that decision. Right. Something could have gone wrong. And two years down the line, you're like, this was that did not work out. It's never too late to make another decision that gets you out of whatever didn't go right. right? So I think keep moving forward and try not to have too much regret because end of the day, whatever happened made you into that person that you are now. And it sounds maybe a little cliche, but if people, people could easily look at my life and say, you have led a very purposeless life. Oh, if no. you had been more if you had done what other people would have done, which is stayed on that linear progression and made your way up more linearly, maybe right now you would be CEO of some big company, or maybe you would be a full professor at some other university. Well, yeah, maybe. But for me, I made the decision. I made the best decision I knew how at that point in time. And all of these weird little things that other people find to be possibly a waste of time and that I didn't end up where I probably could have gotten um, had I followed conventional advice. I'm okay with that because all those weird little things that I did fed into who I am now. And there are some things back then when I think about it now, I'm kind of embarrassed about it or I really wish I had been more you know, demanding and more of a different kind of me, but I wouldn't have known that back then. So why do I blame myself for those moments in time? All I can say is where I am now, I try to be as happy as I can with what I've done, but I can't tell you in a couple of years when I turned 50, I could very much turn around and say to you song, wow, you know what? At age 50, I thought I was going to be doing something else, but I'm going to make a decision and move forward. And that's what I'm going to be doing in my formidable fifties. Right. So I think mainly if stuff doesn't always go the way you want, but that doesn't mean stuff couldn't go the way you want moving forward. Keep making the best decisions you know how for that moment in time. That's, I think, all we, any of us can do. I think you hit the nail on the head. I think um, life is not linear, as I found out, right? Uh, over the course of last year, having left my corporate job, doing other things, you know, coaching, agency, part-time, freelance, writing, I, I, I also realized that it's, it's, it's circumstances push you to a different direction. You would have to take a different path to realize that, you know, what you've been missing, number one, and number two, you can actually make something great out of it. If you follow a straight path, um, yeah, you, you, life becomes predictable. And back to your risk-taking appetite, it, it's, it can be boring as well. You're not learning. Yes. You're not growing up as well. You're not le learning new things. So when you look back, I, I don't think you don't have an impressive <laughs> you know, like in life, I, I yeah, I've given up on being impressive anyway. <laughs> but you have a highly satisfied life. You have lived your life to the fullest. I think that's what matters. 
Yeah, and I think, but again, I have to say I've been very lucky, right? I've had enough support in my life that I could be very free to make decisions that may not have been in terms of, you know, being lucrative, right? Because I didn't necessarily have to worry about it in the same way that others might have to, which I guess from this more sensible side of things is if you want to have the freedom, if you want to be able to keep making different choices, then you've got to do the basics right. Right. Make sure your finances are in order. Make sure that, you know, your housing is in order. It's really the boring stuff that we have to take care of. But if you can get the basics right, then you'll have the freedom that comes with it. And I say that probably more for the younger folk, you know, like my 18 year old, just don't think that when you go out there and you're on your own, you're going to have such a nice, comfortable bed and all these nice arrangements around you because we expect you to be independent and there are going to be some things that are not going to be so much fun. But once you set it up, that's when things get more fun. Absolutely. I mean, there's no shortcut to success. You have to put in the hard work first. That's why I tell my two kids as well. Really, you have to put in the effort and then you can uh, reap in the rewards later on. Yeah. And there's no real definition of success, right? So end of the day, I got to put aside what I think successful looks like. Um, but if we can survive, you know, have a stable life and contribute back to, you know, have some impact in our society, I think on our society, I think that's what's important. Yes. Your definition of success is not the same as my definition of success, let alone the parents for their child. So thank you so much, Sien. On that note, we should and the lovely chat. Yeah, and take care of yourself. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Take care of it. Right. So that's it for from me and Sien. Thank you so much for listening. Take care, everyone.